Well, for those visiting us this morning, we welcome you. And we've been exploring over what has now been seven weeks this theme, this biblical theme of God as our shepherd God. I have no clicker this morning, it's sort of died on us, so I have a personal clicker in David. Thank you. And we've been thinking about God's shepherd heart for his people, how God cares and nourishes and guides and protects. We've moved on to thinking about the leaders of Israel who were called to be, sadly so often were not, under shepherds, expressing something of God's heart in the way they ruled and cared. And for the last two weeks, we've been looking at the Good Shepherd incarnate in Jesus Christ. The Good Shepherd who seeks the lost and who lays down his life. And so this morning we come to the end of this series. And we end by taking a look from this letter of 1 Peter at how this theme should shape the Christian church and particularly the leadership of that church. Now, an enormous amount has been written over the centuries, as many of us know, on church leadership. I very much appreciate the comment of one church leader um, who wrote this on the screen behind me. Our great danger is not burnout, but blackout. Losing consciousness of why we are here and who we are called to be. And I can identify with that. And this short section of uh, 1 Peter 5 has been a passage that over the years I've regularly returned to. On the very first elders meeting here in St Andrews, uh, we read this passage together to set the scene. Peter is writing to the elders of the churches scattered through Asia Minor, modern-day Asiatic Turkey. The churches were harassed. There is much in this letter about how these early Christians are to face suffering. It was a tough time for the church. Judgment begins with the household of God. Peter has just written in chapter 4 and verse 17. And Peter appeals to this leadership under pressure as a fellow elder, as a co-elder. To the elders among you, verse 1, I appeal as a fellow elder. He doesn't play his apostle card. He wants them to know that he's one of them. He's been there. He's suffered as they are suffering. That he too knows all too well the joys and pressures of church leadership. And he wants to offer guidance and encouragement. Now Peter, of course, could have chosen a whole range of images to talk about church leadership. And there are as many in the New Testament as there are in the secular Greek literature of his day. He could have talked about a church leader as being, as some do, like a sea captain piloting a ship 
or as Paul does, like a master builder, or as a centurion, or as a civic governor. But tellingly, Paul turns to this image that we've been focusing on over these past seven weeks. And he says in verse 2, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Now it's worth just thinking for a moment why Peter does this. Well, for a start, he's clearly tapping in to that biblical tradition that we've been thinking about over these weeks. Just as the Israelite leaders were called to be under shepherds, the kings and the nobles, so the calling is the same for the leaders of the messianic community. But more specifically, it seems clear from this passage that Peter chooses this image because he wants to underline that the reference point for all Christian leadership is to be Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. So notice how this short passage is bracketed around with statements about Jesus. So look at verse 1 again, where he says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, and he says, And a witness of Christ's sufferings. He may not have been there exactly at the cross, but he witnessed many of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. And look how it ends, this little passage in verse 4, talking about Jesus as the chief shepherd who will one day return. Now, this is a rather basic point, but I think it's worth pausing. For there is so much written about Christian leadership that takes its cue consciously, often unconsciously, not from Christ, but from the success culture in which we are immersed. We are often given the impression, and it can be quite intimidating, that what the church actually needs is brilliant personalities, and great scholars, and charismatic visionaries, and inspiring strategists, and riveting preachers. This is my get-out clause. <laughs> well, happy when that happens. But what Peter is pressing is that far more crucial for the health and mission of God's people is that it is to have leaders whose characters are shaped by Jesus, whose ministries are inspired by the ministry of Jesus, whose suffering is because of Jesus, whose focus is on the good news of Jesus, who pa whose power comes from the resurrection of Jesus, and whose goal is that, as it says here, that when the chief shepherd appears, we will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. I also think it's not difficult to imagine asking this question, why did he choose this image? That we reflect on Peter's own deeply poignant Easter experience on Lake Galilee. Peter, you remember, utterly despondent at the crucifixion of the one he thought was going to somehow bring in the kingdom there and then. 
despondent at the crucifixion, broken by his own denials of Jesus, and he returns to the, his old haunt and he begins fishing again. And there, of course, he meets the risen Christ. And on a life-changing beach walk, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Well, fisherman Peter, now feed my lambs. Fisherman Peter, now take care of my sheep. Fisherman Peter, now feed my sheep. Peter, you will continue to fish for the lost, but you will shepherd my people. And now, all these years later, Peter the Apostle, Peter the fellow elder, says to his colleagues with great conviction, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. You don't own or possess anyone. This is God's flock. This is God's flock to be cared for in God's way. And then if you look at what follows comes the instructions. And it is all so simple. Three parallel statements. In each case, a negative followed by a positive. Here they are. Be shepherds of God's flock, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. Now as you look at these instructions on the screen, notice what is conspicuous by its absence. There's nothing here about competency, ma competency mapping. There's nothing here about spiritual gift inventories. Nothing here about performance indicators. Nothing here about growth targets. Not that any of those are wrong. Indeed, I think some of them are very helpful. But for Peter, it is all about our attitude. It is all about our frame of mind. It is all about the spirit in which God calls us to serve. And perhaps one way that we could summarize this, and something that I've thought a lot about, is that Peter is saying here, that it is all about the tone that we set. Aristotle, when he was talking about rhetoric, used to say that there were three key components to communication. There must be good reason content, there must be logos, there must be appropriate passion and emotion, there must be pathos, but there must also be what he called ethos. The character, the tone, the demeanor of the speaker. Indeed, Aristotle said that the latter was the most important and it seems to be something that Peter says here. When 
President Nelson Mandela walked into a political meeting, the tone changed. Such was the dignity and the conciliatory demeanor of Nelson Mandela. When Alec Ferguson took over Manchester United, the tone changed. Woe betide the player in the dressing room who saw himself as a prima donna. And so much about Christian leadership is about setting the right tone. Have you ever noticed this? You walk into a church and you sense the tone of that church. A discordant tone, or a joyful tone, or a prayerful tone, or a bored tone. And that tone, says Peter, is largely set by the leadership. A couple of us last week were reading the story of Jesus calling Levi the tax collector. And those Pharisees who just could not get their heads around the fact that Jesus accepted an invitation to a I've just started to follow Jesus party. I do remember once being invited to a pub by a student to celebrate him becoming a Christian. And that was what is happening here. But what the Pharisees never thought about was how did the tone of that party change when Jesus was a guest? And what Peter says here is that first, there is a likeness to the tone that he wants us to have. Just press on, David, it will come. Is it not coming? We have got stuck. Here we go. Serve, he says, first of all, not out of compulsion, but willingly. Joyful consent. There is to be, says Peter, a joy, a laughter, a non-critical likeness, a can-do attitude, a real enthusiasm that should mark all Christian leadership. And remember, Peter is writing to suffering, persecuted believers here. When his colleague Paul wrote, God loves a cheerful giver, it wasn't just about cheerfully giving money, it was about cheerfully giving time and energy and effort. There are few things, I'm sure you would agree, more deadening for a church than a church leader or indeed church member who makes it clear that they are only doing what they are doing because they feel obliged. Trapped by a rotor, cornered by the fact that nobody else will do it. A joyless existence like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son. Happy the church, says Peter, and pleasing to God when there is a real willingness to serve, seeing the needs to be done, joyfully rolling up the sleeves and getting involved. Middle Eastern shepherds had no site managers. They cared for their sheep with devotion and with joy, well away from anyone seeing them. 
And secondly, not only a lightness to the tone, but a clarity to the tone. Not greedy for gain, but eager to serve. An integrity in our service. Paul did not write the book of Romans only when he had agreed his royalties with his publisher. Peter did not go on his preaching tours looking forward to his lecture fees. The elderly apostle John did not advise the church in Ephesus only after negotiating his consultancy rate. Clearly there was and there is, and I am a benefactor of it, a Christian tradition of releasing people into ministries by supporting them financially. The worker is worthy of his hire. But money, status, privilege are never to motivate God's servants. Our reward, says Paul in verse 4, is very different. It is a crown of glory on that last day that will never fade away. And sadly, there are some church leaders the world over who do not seem to have ever read these verses. And thirdly, not only is there a lightness and a clarity to the tone that we are meant to set, but there is to be a gentleness to our tone. Not domineering, but being role models to the flock that has been entrusted to you. If money is an issue in church leadership, then power is an even greater issue. It is all too easy, I tell you, that in the name of seeking to be a diligent shepherd, the danger of beginning to control and to manipulate, to be possessive, even tragically to harass and abuse the flock of God. I once had rather unhappy dealings with the church where uh, happily I was not the pastor, where one of the elders of this church was a millionaire and he was a significant employer in his area. And some of the church members, indeed some of the elders, were his employees. Inexcusably, despicably, he used his influence at work to change things he wanted changing within the church. This week I've been rereading a little book that some of you may know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's little book, Life Together, partly based on his experience before the war of training ordinance for the confessing church. And in a chapter on ministry that I reread for this morning, Bonhoeffer has these headings. The ministry of listening, the ministry of helpfulness, the ministry of bearing. And he famously begins this section with these words, which I hope will come up. No, I think I've somehow, can you go back, David? They haven't come up, don't worry. And the words are these. The first service that one owes to others in the fellowship consists in listening to them. Just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love 
for our brothers and sisters is learning to listen. And then in a very ouch comment, he says this, Christians, especially ministers, always think that they have to contribute something when they are in company. And they forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. And it suddenly occurred to me as I was rereading this this week that the litmus test of whether a leader is lording it over the flock are the questions that Bonhoeffer asks. How much listening am I doing? Because actually you cannot listen truly and at the same time lord it over. How much helpful attention am I paying to the small matters in the community? How much bearing of one another burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ am I doing? For if you are bearing one another's burdens, it seems to me that you're highly likely to be an overbearing burden on others. Shepherds always seem to me to be carrying things, water and food and Stones to make a fold and bales of straw and lost sheep and weak lambs. Not lording it over those who have entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. So, let me conclude. The challenge this morning is primarily for those of us privileged to be in different forms of Christian leadership. Does our example, does the tone that we set make it easier for others to follow and trust in the Good Shepherd? But this passage is not just for elders and leaders. For he goes on to say, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourself. It's a, a lovely word that speaks of an apron being put on when you're busy in dirty work. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. So let me ask you, what tone do you set in your office, at home, in your hall of residence? in the club that you're part of, in the school that you have leadership in. For sure, I think the tone of leaders will filter down to the whole community. And that's why this text moves from talking about leadership to talking about the whole church. The church is meant to be the gold standard for the rest of the world of what joyful service looks like. And these attitudes are not just for the shepherds, but for all who are serious in following the Good Shepherd, willing to serve, selflessly giving for the sake of others, and being gentle in service. In the catacombs of Rome, there are some very ancient paintings, some of them going back to the late 2nd and 3rd century 
AD. And many of them, of course, are Christian symbols. The dove, the vine, the fish, the anchor. But one of the most common, and here's an example of a very early Christian art depiction of the Good Shepherd, is that of the Good Shepherd. For Peter, in the first century, for Christians in Rome in the centuries that followed, also under huge pressure, this image of the Good Shepherd was of huge comfort and blessing. And as we come to the end of this series, may it be that this Good Shepherd is our Saviour, is the one that we are trusting for all the challenges of our lives. And may we meet this Good Shepherd in the attitudes and the values and the practices that the leaders and all live out in this community.